This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Canon versus Openness. The Chicago Film Fest. Shanty Hunters. And Saving Franz Ferdinand. Robin, what's better than dinosaurs? Hmm, I don't think there is anything better than dinosaurs. How about dinosaurs plus 5e? Sold! Well, get ready, because the 5e prehistoric campaign setting, Plain Gia, is on Kickstarter now from Atlas Games. Wait, didn't they make Niambi and Northern Crown too? Yes, for third edition, plus Penumbra, so you know it's going to be excellent. Tell me more! Plain Gia is the prehistoric fantasy campaign setting for 5e, offering endless adventures in a vast, brutal world. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe. It has everything you love about 5e, but reimagined for a primal, prehistoric world. Plus dinosaurs! Live on Kickstarter until November. November 18th. Search for Plain Gia. That's plain as an airplane, then G-E-A. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the friendly confines of the gaming hut. But wait, the the, the miniatures, they're all they're all Warhammer miniatures, Robin. I don't like the sound of this. And the the dice, that they're all branded vampire dice with the little blood thing on. Oh, dear. Robin, Robin, the Doritos, the Doritos, they're not the store brand. They're the actual brand. And there on the wall, it's Jimi Hendrix, because Jimi is here to welcome us to another installment of Axis. Bold as love. That's right. <laughs> you finally got that in. Finally got that in. We're doing the axes of game design once more. The sliders, the the spectra, if you will. However you like to put it in your heart. We, of course, will never stop calling them axes. Perhaps penultimately. We'll see. All right. And in this installment, we discuss a slider that you have labeled canon versus open. And I'm going to guess... That that difference is you have to stick to something that's been pre-established or you can just go bananas and make up your own wackadoo thing. Is that exactly so? So as you pointed out previously, no, that, that, that was, that was a fast axis, Robin. We're done now. Exactly. Well, uh, I I finally hit upon a a nomenclature that was obvious on (laughs) 15 minutes (laughs) of every level. (laughs) Yeah. So as you pointed out earlier in this series, Uh, Setting is as much a part of game design as rules mechanics. There are uh, people who deny that and denigrate setting. But of course, for a lot of people, setting is what interests them and it's what they interact with. And they don't care about that fascinating logarithmic scale that you have behind your uh, die roll. Uh, But what they do care about is how these two vampire clans uh, get along or the uh, historical background of uh, this uh, hamlet in the middle of nowhere in uh, Glorantha or what have you. And so the two sides of the slider, as you suggest, are one of them is a highly detailed world that is presented to you as something that you fictionally believe in. And the other one is one that has all sorts of space for you to uh, make stuff up. And so even within iterations of D&D, there are various positions on the slider where you've got your forgotten realms is exquisitely detailed and that's what people like about it they want to know uh you know that oh the players are headed this tavern well i bet somewhere there's a description of the tavern i can pick it up and it's there and it feels real to me because i can do that on the other hand you had your original D, where it was sort of a loosey-goosey thing where you just sort of made it up as you went along and uh, that was part of the fun it didn't come there were implications of setting There are rule structures that implied, oh, well, this has to be true about the world. And sometimes there are rule structures that you shouldn't imply anything about the world about because that's (laughs) that way a a rabbit hole of uh, logic that that the system is is there. And so I think this is a true slider because both of these things have their 
uh, positives and their negatives. And some people uh, love the detail of canon and the imaginative exercise of uh, thinking that there's a real, a real imaginary world that you're going to be grist with. Whereas other people are like, I don't want all that background and exposition. I just want to say that, yeah, over the side of that hill, it's the Hall of the Mandrake Kings. That's it. And, uh, they're, uh, They've cornered the market on Mandrake. That makes sense. And uh, you're mad at them because you want their Mandrake. That makes sense. Go fight. And, of course, there's all sorts of layers of uh, in-betweenness, even within different gumshoe games. Some of them are more, here's the setting, and this is what it is. And others of them are more, here's six different ways you could alter your setting. Yeah, I mean, I will just do a tiny bit of uh, premise rejection at the beginning. And also, I will extend your slider even farther than you have in, in the other direction. Obviously, if you are playing Forgotten Realms or Vampire or uh, Dune or Star Trek, you are welcome to turn it immediately into a loosey-goosey nonsense game that is merely made of the Legos that came with the setting. So you're like, I like Nosferatu, but I don't like Ventru. So there's no Ventru in my vampire game. And also, vampires can walk around in the sun because I want that to happen. I I, I want to see that happen. So I'm going to do this. And also, they blow up when you put holy water on them because I, I, I like that vibe. And you can mix and match and loosey-goose your setting. And basically, unless the uh, setting and the rules specifically are very deeply intertwined, which they almost never are, which I would argue is sometimes a mechanical flaw, but that's a different argument entirely. You can have just as much fun playing, you know, Star Trek wrong or Glorantha wrong as you can, you know, any other way. The canon is something that the game designer has offered, but that you, the player, are not necessarily obligated to take up. Although, obviously, there's a degree of um, uh, premise shock if you say we're playing Glorantha, but everyone has steam engines and the players who showed up to play RuneQuest in proper Glorantha may kvetch about that a bit. Right. Well, well that's a whole interesting thing, right? Is and, and again, that comes to the emotional attachment that people have to canon. If the players are also invested in the setting, it may be that they'll be less angry about steampunk Glorantha than they will about yeah, this is Glorantha, except this one village has a different history. That might, well, <laughs> infuriate them, right? Um, and so there's layers of premise rejection upon premise rejection here, because as a GM, you can alter whatever premises you have, but do your players want you uh, to do that? Uh, in Since we're talking about Glorantha, those of us who've written Glorantha things over the years have struggled mightily to get people to accept that they can change things. But the, uh, often the answer is, that's not what we want. We don't want yeah. to change things. We want to be presented with these details. So like any other thing that you decide to change about a game, you know, okay, well, this is D&D, &D, except uh, it's D12s instead of D20s. you got to be ready for the consequences of that and whether the, the players also want to be at the same point in the slider that you are. Right. And then I would say that the other end of that slider, which you is goes even farther obviously, than original D&D, &D, which, as you say, has an implied or an implicit setting to it, to something like Fate, which doesn't have anything to it. It doesn't even have stats to it, necessarily, because you can move those around. And so that, I guess, is the fullest, openest game design, where even the nature of the thing you're doing is up for negotiation or decision by the GM. I mean, if you're playing D&D, &D, you still have a pretty good idea of your core activity. You're hunting monsters. You're killing them. You're getting their stuff. You're getting better at hunting monsters, thus always and forever. If you say to someone, we're playing Fate or we're playing GURPS, there is immediately a negotiation and a discussion and an agreement that is, what kind of Fate or GURPS are we doing? What is happening in this magic land? It's not even, if you'd said, we're playing Gumshoe, you at least know that mystery solving in some form or other will be a core activity because the game engine is optimized for that. But fate or GURPS or another universal system, you don't even necessarily know that. So right. that I guess is the openest end of open is the home brewed GURPS setting that you came up with and, and uh, drew your players into by your own great skills as a GM. Right. And then there's a question as to whether you, the GM have a canon, right. Of the uh, elaborate world that you've created or whether 
you are uh, willing to adapt it to the situation, right? And so then are playing it in a very picaresque role with uh, the punches sort of a way. Yeah. Right. I, and that's, and that sort of is the curve round, I guess. I mean, we say that every GM is a game designer. Uh, and I guess in some sense, every GM is a game designer. And certainly in this sense, they are because they are making setting decisions, even down to the level of, you know, even in Harn, Every single NPC doesn't have stats. Once you've decided that in this village in Harn, there's a second blacksmith and you decided his stats, guess what? You're now a Harn designer, just like uh, any DM who's populated a random hex in uh, Ravenloft is a, a game designer or any GURPS guy who comes up with his campaign background because he really, really, really wants to play uh, ancient Greece technomancer and nothing ever will stop him. So there we are. And of course, you've got the games where building the world is part of a collaborative process, which right. is, I think even further out on the open end of the spectrum than we're playing GURPS, which GURPS mm-hmm. setting are we playing? Right. Because once you decide what setting you're playing, it sort of reverts it back. It closes the slider back down right. a bit. Yeah. Whereas this is, you know, the, the world doesn't exist until we all make it up. And that's Microscope, for example, obviously. Yeah, prime example of, mm-hmm. of that. But there are other games that do that. Yes, absolutely. Right. And as I touched on earlier, even a single game line can have different levels of approach to that. So Ash and Stars and Mutant City Blues, both games and settings that I designed, are just, here's the world and here's how it works. Here's the setting. Whereas... Uh, Knights Black Agents, you present a bunch of different things that can be happening within the core activity so that the core activity is set, but even there are different levels of tone of that. But who the vampires are and what they are is left deliberately as an exercise to the GM to figure out. And if you had if you had designed Ash and Stars, you might well have sat down, looked at a whole bunch of different space opera genres and gone, gone here's how to do a lensman and here's how to do Michael Moorcock in space and so forth and down the line so that even a rules engine that is relatively set can be flexible in the degree of setting canon that it nails down. And I guess this is the a good place to mention licenses because often those constrained designers, uh, if you have, for example, the Call of Cthulhu license, as I did when I'm doing Trail of Cthulhu, that constrains me to put as much that is under that license into the book as possible to amplify player fun. And I very much attempted to blow up the setting in that discussion while still presenting lots of potential canon, because uh, the thing you don't want the Cthulhu mythos to turn into is the Legion of Superheroes or the Avengers, where every single character is memorized by nerds and they know all their powers and weaknesses. You want the opposite of that for uh, Trail of Cthulhu, but you have a present canon that is magnificent and wonderful and evocative and the reason you got the license in the first place. And so therefore, uh, you know, you are obliged not just to yourself as a lover of Lovecraft or Star Trek or Dune or whatever, but to the player who, after all, bought a game that said licensed adaptation of Call of Cthulhu, that it will have what they expect that setting to have. And changes that you make, like moving from the 20s to the 30s, have to be made very judiciously in a way that your own wackadoo Cthulhu game does not necessarily have to be made. Right, because you would think that openness would be the thing that most people would be drawn to. Let's make it up ourselves. But I think that the market and people's interests demonstrate that, in fact, the uh, wanting to interact with something that someone else has vividly imagined and nailed down for you is extremely popular, in part because of something you alluded to in a previous segment in this series, which is mastery of setting is uh, something that is both fun to have as a thing to exercise in the uh, in the game space, but also just amassing a depth of knowledge about a topic is in itself very enjoyable to people. And if you just say, "Well, yeah, there's a there, here's a map that you fill in," and I don't know something about mandrakes, that doesn't tickle that particular fancy and uh, the close continuity that people want to believe in and perhaps even argue about mm. remains. I think the more generally popular choice as counterintuitive as that may be arguing about continuity robin i'm sure that never happens you must be thinking of a different hobby right Uh, well i guess on on that note before uh, we start uh, looking at the footnotes at the bottom of our comics panel here it's time for us to uh, exit this hut and see what may be waiting for us on the other side 
Uncover the secrets that teem beneath the surface of your happy home. Suburban Consumption of the Monstrous is an anthology of American freeform live-action horror role-playing games. By magnificent game designer Banana Chan. And designer and illustrator Sadia Buys. Explore food, consumption, horror, and the extraordinary ordinary. With solo games as well as LARPs for up to and more than four players. Reverberant with influences ranging from Hannibal Lecter to Jean-Paul Sartre. Banana says it's too creepy and intense for the mass market. Which means it's perfect for Pelgrane Press. And perfect for you, beloved Canon Robin listener. Discover what lurks in the shadows, growing and festering. Live on Kickstarter until November 18th. It's time once more to uh, trudge uh, out into the real world, to uh, head to a uh, place where they're screening a whole bunch of different uh, movies. And that place, Ken, is what venue does the Chicago International Film Festival that is the subject of this cinema hut? What is that menu called? There is the AMC River East 21. And this year they also screen films. They used to screen them all over the city and then they coalesced at that AMC. And this year they also screened at the Gene Siskel Theater, which is a lovely art cinema downtown, and at the Music Box, which is an old school 1920s movie palace on the uh, Happening North Side. So I got to go. It was like the 90s all over again, except for the part where we were seeing crazy movies from countries we didn't even know existed in the 90s, and in some cases did not exist in the 90s. So uh, it was good fun uh, getting out into the city, getting out into a real theater watching movies. And then there was also, of course, because this is the modern world, a streaming component. So some of these films I watched in the venue called My Couch with Virgil. So speaking of countries that I'm pretty sure already exist in the 90s, let's get started with your very favorite pick. Uh, you gave it the pinnacle rating, declaring it a masterpiece. And that is Celine Chiana's Petite Maman. Uh, that's the director of Portrait of a uh, Lady on Fire. And She's come out with one that everybody is raving about, including you. Including me. This is a movie. She filmed it during lockdown. It's filmed basically in the uh, little area of the country where she grew up as a kid. And she has presented this story, which is a masterful fairy tale of the sort in which we have a, our, our main character, Nellie, is a eight-year-old girl. Her grandmother has just died, so her parents have come to her grandmother's house to clear it out. Uh, she's sort of at loose ends, so she goes out into the backyard where her mother, she hears, once built a tree fort. And so she goes looking for that tree fort, and she goes out into the woods, and who does she meet but an eight-year-old girl who is building a tree fort? And uh, the name is uh, the spoiler here, so it's not a spoiler to say, yes, that's her mom. And everything that develops, develops perfectly. It develops both with emotional truth and with the beauty of a, of a perfect children's story. The child actors, who are twin sisters, were amazing. Obviously, uh, Siyama is very, very good at directing child actors. Uh, the camera is shot down from a child's viewpoint. There's a lot of elements of, of the technical quality of the film that, that go into it. And then because it's Celine Siama and because we're all friends, I can tell you that when she drops the music bomb, it kills. It is another perfect thing. It is in some ways very much like Portrait of a Lady and that it's a, a almost a pocket drama with two female characters who both want some kind of validation from the other, but it's also entirely different. But in form, it has a lot of similarities. And also, like that film, it's a pinnacle. It's perfect. Next, we have a title that will no doubt inform the Trail of Cthulhu Russia book that you haven't written yet. And that's Captain Volkanagov Escaped. Uh, this is a Russian film by Natasha Merkulova and Alexei Chupov. Yeah, uh, this movie is set, in theory, in uh, 1937 Leningrad, although as you watch it, you realize this is kind of the Gotham City version of 1937 Leningrad. I mean, it's genuinely run down and terrible, but it's also got a heightened, uh, I, people have called it a neoconstructivist aesthetic. So, for example, the NKVD guys, because indeed our hero Volkanagov is an NKVD guy, the squads that go out to round up criminals and enemies of the state wear red tracksuits, bright red tracksuits. And so they sort of have this weird exterior otherness to them already. Y you waste a little bit of time thinking, 
Well, maybe they wore red tracksuits in 1937. I'm not the expert on what the NKVD wore, but it becomes apparent that we are in a sort of a, a heightened, almost graphic novelly sensible version of Leningrad. But Volkanagov realizes that his buddies are all being purged. And so he bolts from the uh, sort of the big palace where they have their headquarters. And then the movie is about chasing him down. But on the first act turn, he realizes that if he does not get forgiveness from one of his victims, from one of the people left alive after they've executed a, a falsely charged enemy of the state, he will go to hell. And so it becomes a spiritual thriller as well as a sort of regular thriller. And it has uh, elements of obviously Dostoevsky is very strong with that concept. And then the sort of absurdist Gogol that shows up throughout the film and, and all of it tied together by this great thriller construct. The, the main guy hunting him down is tubercular. And so he keeps coughing up blood. It's just, just that bit heightened throughout the film. It's really, really good. It's magnificent. And it is uh, very much the sort of, you know, indictment of uh, Stalinism and the Soviet system that every film should really be if it takes place in the Soviet system, don't you think? From Soviet Russia to East Germany, it's The Last Execution. Uh, this is a German film by Franziska Stunkel. Yeah, this is based on the actual story of Werner Teske, who was the last person officially executed in East Germany. And this was in 1981. They, of course, executed a lot of people since then, sort of on an ad hoc running away type basis. But he was the last one tried and given the death penalty. And he was a scientist. He wants to get a professorship. And he is told because he is basically friends with a defected soccer player that if he joins the HVA, the foreign intelligence wing of the Stasi, that he will get to jump ahead and become a professor early. Well, it turns out he has a natural talent for intelligence work because he has an analytical mind and, and can put facts together. And that, of course, is the wrong thing to be, is indispensable to the Stasi. And so he just keeps being drawn into this ever more horrible world. The only flaw with the film is that the protagonist is basically passive because every time he tries to do anything, no matter how feeble, the Stasi crushes him. That is, of course, the point of the film. It's all shot against authentic East German buildings in authentic East German style locations. The sort of bougie marks look to the film is is all very real and of course it's got a lot of meat of tradecraft and how a very mean intelligence agency which is to say probably all intelligence agencies operate and uh so uh, that's why it's in this even though it's really a psychological drama about one man's disintegration it's also got a lot of good tradecraft in it and uh is uh interesting to watch on that level as well. Now we come to something that's been famously in the works for many, many years from special effects master uh, Phil Tippett. It's uh, his animated film, Mad God, which I gather is quite disturbing. Uh, well, yes, I'm going to just say that right there. Phil Tippett did the stop motion for RoboCop and he gets onto the set to, to work on Jurassic Park and realizes that he's his job is is dead. There's no need for stop motion. We now have computer dinosaurs that are just as good as anything. So he puts his ideas in a in a junk drawer. Later, uh, acolytes come to him and say, it's not dead. It's just different. We want to help you. And so he is re-inspired to re-begin. He kickstarts it. And the result is this horrific dark ride. You could call it an experimental film, but I like dark ride. That's basically what it is. You're uh, sitting there watching awfulness all around you. The sort of frame story is there's this sort of steampunky soldier and he goes down to the literal depths of either hell or the uh, created earth, depending on how Gnostic you feel you want to watch this film. Although with a name like Mad God, the more Gnostic, the better. <laughs> Sounds a little Gnostic-y. A little gnostic uh, Alex Cox plays one of the human characters that shows up every now and again. The human parts, uh, as with all great stop motion, uh, seem disjunctive and angering rather than good or flowy. But it's um, uh, fun to see Alex Cox anyway. But the movie will probably never leave you. If you watch it, know that there is going to be some part of your brain that is now stained whatever color of dark ochre Phil Tippett's mind is by that. Uh, and as I said, if you're going to run the wars in the Yellow King, you don't have to see it. But if you do see it, you're never going to run the wars in Yellow King without using it because it's just that 
powerful and infectious and sticky. And uh, I use all of those adjectives advisedly. Now we come to a film that is definitely getting released because they're doing a deliberately annoying stunt theatrical release for it, where it will play in one city at a time, in one theater at a time, and move around. And that is, uh, uh, I think, going to intrigue people and get them to watch a film by the uh, master of uh, magic realist slow cinema, and that's Thailand's Apishak Pong Wirasidakul uh, with Memoria. But this time he's figured out another way, other than a marketing gimmick, to get you to watch slow cinema, and that's to put Tilda Swinton in it. Yep. I'll tell you what, it's the difference between recommended and a uh, and, and a what-the-hell <laughs> rating from me, because a, a great actor, obviously, can humanize and make intelligible, even if not on an intellectual level, on an emotional level, what's happening. That, of course, is what Tilda Swinton brings to the part. She plays a botanist. She's in, we think she's a botanist. No one ever says, Jessica, you're a botanist. What do you make of this? It's just, you know, a picture pong is not here to, you know, hold your hand at any point. Um, she is plagued by a mysterious sound. Uh, no one else can hear it. She sort of drifts through Medellin and Bogota, trying to figure out what's happening. There's a really good bit where she meets a sound engineer and they put together a version of her sound. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, a scene where you're um, doing the identikit to uh, figure out who the criminal is. That's a great bit. And you can absolutely you, you should lift that for uh, any sort of spooky modern day thing. It's very much a weird tale in that it is a uh, it's not horror, but it's certainly not naturalist. I would say magic realism is not what it is, that it does not have that, even though it's in Latin America, it does not have that sort of sense of fey joy that uh, magic realism often brings. It's very much a, this is an unsettling thing from the edge of human experience. Hmm. And then we have two hours of, hmm. It's uh, amazing. It's riveting. I, I drank a big coffee beforehand because I, I knew that I would go to sleep. Otherwise, I don't think I needed the coffee to be that big. I was never bored, and I was uh, only occasionally irked. And uh, most of that, admittedly, is down to Tilda. Right. And, and as the director says, if you fall asleep in one of his movies, that's also good and part of the yep part, part of, of the intent. <laughs> Next, we come to Broadcast Signal Intrusion. Uh, this is an American film by Jacob Gentry. Yeah, it seemed like it might be supernatural, and I guess I should say for our audience that it is not, that it is a crime movie, not a supernatural movie. Uh, the basic shtick is that in real life in Chicago, in 1987, there was someone who flashed images of Max Headroom that did not belong on the TV. I mean, they belonged on the TV, just not on that channel, on, on that program, uh, and was never caught. And it was called a broadcast signal intrusion or a hijacked TV signal. They like to use the word hijacking. But that was the only time the government ever used the wrong word to describe a basically innocuous activity. It never <laughs> happened after that. And then uh, Jacob Gentry has made a sort of of a crime movie. Our hero is a video archivist in 1999 Chicago. He stumbles onto a broadcast signal intrusion that is, in fact, a creepy masked figure speaking in creepy serial killer uh, muddled bass, and he works it out, and he indeed connects it to a bunch of disappearing girls that happened right about the same time, and then goes down the proverbial rabbit hole. It's very much a 70s conspiracy thriller in feel. Obviously, uh, Gentry is shot Chicago to look like 1999 in a really good way. There's like one bit where you can see the tip of the Trump Tower and in the audience that I was in, everyone's like, oh, because we were all rooting, obviously. <laughs> and then the score by Ben Lovett, which I have to mention, um, the score was all done in lockdown. So he had individual artists do their individual piece of the orchestral score, send it to him, and then he mixed it, as he said, on a VHS player so that it would feel 70s And uh, it's uh, really good in that way that the score really elevates it. It's uh, not quite strong enough to conceal the fact that the script is pretty linear. There's not any twists. It's just a straight up, you know, line down the rabbit hole. So I can't really say that it's a great 70s thriller, but it is uh, certainly watchable. And obviously the intrusions, which were directed by a different guy in an extraordinarily creepy and horrible way, they deserve to be in an esoterrorist game. They deserve a supernatural explanation that this film doesn't give them. So next up from Spain, uh, we have uh, House of Snails. I understand you have to uh, start 
with its nail-related advisory. I do, uh, because obviously people, not just Darcy, mostly Darcy, entirely Darcy, listen to this program for snail content. The snails here are borderline symbolic, but no one turns into a snail. It is, there's not a giant hidden snail. It is not Lair of the White Snail, although that would be a great movie. The, it was the name of the novel that they adopted it from. That's why it's called House of Snails. Right. In, in marketing terms, you call that a snail teaser. It is a snail teaser. It's a classic snail teaser. One of the most classic, I feel. Anyway, it's about a novelist, speaking of novels, uh, named Antonio, who uh, rents the titular house. He's in a remote part of Spain, and the town is weird and hides a dark secret, and you're there and you're saying... I'm ready. I'm ready for weird town activity. Oh, and he's a writer and he's alone in a big rambly house and uh, drinking too much. Maybe it's The Shining. Well, it kind of is in a lot of ways, except for being a masterpiece. So you got that going on. There's a lot of uh, werewolf head fakes and hints going around. So you, for a while, I was thinking that maybe it was going to turn into ancient sorceries. Great Blackwood story. And I was rooting for that. That did not happen. And so I guess at the end, uh, you've got a lot of great Legos that uh, Astorga did not assemble into a, as good a house of snails as, as I had hoped she would. Um, really, the uh, the saving grace is lots of good atmosphere. You can definitely build a, a ancient uh, sorceries out of it. And, of course, uh, Paz Vega's in it, and it's just nice to see her uh, show up and not get tied up by the director. That's just a, a good thing for Paz, I'm sure, that she got to actually move her arms during the shoot. Uh, well, it's time for us to move our arms and make a little flapping motion and fly uh, out of this uh, cinema hut into uh, whatever other hut or segment awaits after this exciting commercial message. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Avert a fatal retcon for this podcast by pitching in alongside such beloved Patreon backers as Chuck Cooley, Todd W. Olson, Brian Thomas, James Stewart, and Chris McCarthy. It's time for Ken and or Robin talk to someone else. And today I, Ken, am talking at Gen Con actual Gen Con to someone else, someone else in this case being game designer and man of the sea, Tristan Zimmerman. Tristan, welcome to the show. Welcome to Gen Con. How have you been? How's things treating you? You know, so far so good. It, uh, it, it was, it's a little dead here, uh, which isn't a terrible surprise, but you know, walking around town yesterday, no lines at hotels, no lines at the steak and shake, no line at will call, which blew my mind. I don't know if that's concerning or just sort of like Night of the Comet, where you're, you know, I don't even know what's going on. But yeah, it, it has been sort of a weird Gen Con. I mean, this is not the Gen Con segment. This is the Tristan segment. But uh, I mean, the fact that we've only got one of these segments in itself is an indication that we're not quite up to full speed ahead at the Gen Con uh, scene. But while we are at the Gen Con scene, let's talk about you and your game. Your game is Shanty Hunters. Because, you know, and again, forgive me for saying this old trope, you're playing people who travel the world of the 1880s, copying down sea shanty lyrics, being opposed by personified spirits of the sea. We've seen it a million times. What makes your version better and different? 
So uh, the thing that sets me apart, of course, from this vast and repetitive genre uh, is this is a gumshoe game. Hey, uh, there we go. So, yeah, Shanty Hunters is a, is a gumshoe RPG about collecting magical sea shanties in the year 1880. You play as people who are obsessed with collecting these maritime work songs before the, the age of commercial sail vanishes. Right. Because in 1880, steam power is on the ascendant, uh, but commercial sail is still viable, though clearly dying. Yeah. And if you want these songs to be documented before they are lost... It's now or never. The problem is, every time your characters write down a, a, a shanty that, you know, oh, we're on the ship, we're sailing from here to there, and like, hey, the sailors are singing a shanty we haven't documented before. Quick, let's write it down. The problem is that the lyrics from that song then come alive. Oh. And they, they begin to recapitulate themselves. So all of the events and all of the imagery in that song begin to bedevil the, the ship and the crew. And it is up to the characters who got the ship and the crew into this mess by documenting the shanty in the first place to deal with the problem before, uh, before it sinks the ship off. Before everyone is blown down. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, I can see how this would be a terrifically great game for players who are already pretty cognizant of sea shanties, but if you know one or about one sea shanty, how do you, the GM, for a bunch of players, you know, who have been driven mad by TikTok or whatever, <laughs> how do you, you know, come up with with new stuff that is both true to the sort of the spirit of the folk songs you're emulating, but is also divergent and interesting enough to be a series of encounters. What's the what's the mechanism in the game that helps, you know, the GM who is not already sea shanty obsessed with, you know, bringing those into the game? Because, obviously, as you say, they're the center of the action. Right? Sure. Yeah. Um, so there's two answers to that, uh, both working together. Number one is the book, of course, includes 17 sea shanties. These are real historical documented Actual shanties. With the adventure elements included or highlighted or... Absolutely. Right, yeah. Uh, and selected, in fact, because these ones are good and they make good adventures as opposed to like, yeah, I mean, I thought these were cool. Like, no, these are these yes, are ones right. that are going to make great sessions. These are songs about vengeful ghosts, not about my feet are wet. Exactly. Right. Though, to be fair, my feet are wet, like, that can go into the boat is sinking. Oh, right, no. Yes, right. um, but... The other answer is uh, the game strongly leans into Chekhov's gun. The sailing trade is is exceptionally complicated. Sailing ships are, are worlds unto themselves. And, of course, we cannot assume that any GM or any player is is going to know their port from their starboard. They're going to know the difference between a, a, a forecastle head and a rudder chain. So, of course, the book includes all the information that the GM will need so that they can then look it up, not so they can memorize all of it. Right, yeah. Jesus Christ. But the book strongly encourages GMs to say, hey, I know that rudder chains are going to be relevant in this in this adventure because the shanty mentions a rudder chain or it's got this imagery over here that I'm interpreting in this way that like, hey, dealing with the rudder chain is a way to deal with this problem. So cool, throw in an, an encounter or a scene at the beginning of the adventure that forces the PCs to interact with the rudder chain. Not just right. to be like, hey, I'm lecturing at you about what this is, but but really to get their hands dirty and, and mess with it. Because that way the players will remember. And then later in the session they'll be like, you know what I know about right. rudder, rudder chains. chains. Johnny rudder chain here. And then I guess this leads into the question of why gumshoe? Because one assumes that because the game is literally about people who have a lot of obscure knowledge at their fingertips, it's vastly faster, I assume, to uh, game it out such that you don't have to roll to remember the rudder chain. Sure. The big reason, actually, is because gumshoe is built from the ground up with the idea that the players and the player characters will have access to the clues, right? right. It's a central conceit. Mm -hmm. And this is a game where the central information you need is the lyrics of the song. The thing and you started the adventure by writing down. Exactly. So, it's like if you began by mapping the haunted house. Exactly. And so if we've all got the handout in front of us that has the lyrics of Fire Down Below or whatever, I wanted to use a system that had that baked in as, as an idea, that I wouldn't have to, you know, work around it and make it fiddle or whatever. Like, that's that's central. That's core. Obviously, this is a, a, a topic that 
you know, you've been obsessed with or interested in well before the internet briefly was. Yes. And, you know, sea shanties are now way in the rearview mirror. Oh, yeah. Very 2018. What made you think shanty hunting? That's that's what I'm going to do my fourth game about. So I I went to sea before my first birthday. I come from a sailing family. We sailed to Cuba. We sailed to the Dry Tortugas. We sailed down the eastern seaboard. When I graduated college, I joined the Navy. I circumnavigated the globe. I crossed the line off Somalia. You know, there's a lot of people out there who are a lot saltier than I am, but... By American standards, you know, I got my sea legs, You're pretty right? salty. And so I really wanted to, to make this a, a love letter to the maritime profession, because it's it's truly, it's it's beautiful. Yeah, and it's obviously, you know, you, you don't have to go back to the Odyssey to find the fact that sea voyages are inherently narratives. Yes. Right? They're stories. You've they got, start one place and they end up another place. And you've been changed along the way mm-hmm. into something rich and strange. And you've got, the basis of this is the... Sea shanty expanded cinematic universe? Are there, you know, Krakens or uh, Joseph Conrad things or, you know, other elements that we might think of when we think maritime adventure? Or is it relatively focused down onto the shanties themselves? So I got two answers for that. One is uh, in a one shot, I, in the book, strongly encourage GMs to leave it vague, Mm -hmm. right? Like just include the elements that are relevant for what's going on and everything else is whatever. For short campaigns, and while Shanty Hunters is, is great for one-shots, I'm running four one-shots you know, at Gen Con. Almost, because you have this structure, it's almost hyper-designed for one-shots. It's very episodic. Um, and it, it, if, if I may be so bold, it's it's much more episodic than any other gumshoe game. So I had to make some rules changes for that. But the, the game really shines in short campaigns. I recommend about seven sessions. I think seven sessions is about perfect. One for each C. <laughs> yes. Uh, but... For those, what I what I strongly encourage is for players and GMs to come up with a villain collaboratively. And the villain is the wicked spirit who is the reason why these shanties are recapitulating. I provide six sample villains in the book, but hey, you don't have to use one of those. You can make your own with your gaming group. But in designing the villain, you are, A, explaining the setting, right? Like, why are shanties recapitulating? Oh, because sea witches are real. Oh, because... Davy Jones and Nep- King Neptune's court, like you're explaining the magic here, but you're also focusing the campaign down on the elements that the players want to interact with, right. right? So there's a lot of possible themes here, like, yeah, man, let's just pick the themes we actually want to play with, and when you, you design your villain, you build it around your themes. Did you take that concept out of Gay and Reach, or did you take that out of Microscope, or did you take that out of some other third source? I... Cannot point to a specific source, but it's in the water, right? right like, yeah. at this point, we're, we're all drinking it, so... You talk about optimizing gumshoe for one-shots. Is there best-of-breed practices that you... Is that honed through playtest? What's... Tell, tell us a little bit about that. So, in my experience, running and playing a lot of gumshoe, the point economy for investigative abilities really shines in arcs that are three to six sessions long. Yeah. And that's about how long it takes for everybody to exhaust their points and be like, oh, geez, we're in the thick of it now. And then it finally wraps up and you get your points back and everybody breathes a really wonderful sigh of relief. Shanty Hunters Adventures typically play out in about three hours. Mm-hmm. And they are highly episodic. Each shanty kind of stands alone. So it, it does not fit this three to six session arc. So what I wound up doing is I, I wound up, uh, instead of having a whole bunch of general abilities and a whole bunch of investigative abilities, I collapsed it all down to to eight skills rather than breaking it out into mm-hmm. separate categories. When the GM's like, okay, you know, that's really interesting. Roll me seamanship. You, you know, you, you roll... You add points to it. You don't necessarily make a spend there. Right. Not necessary. However, if you, the player, are staring down this roll and you're like, oh, geez, it's really important to me that I make this roll, then you can draw a little tick mark on your character sheet beside the relevant skill and you pass automatically. Right. Very analogous to making a, a spend with an investigative ability in core gumshoe. And, of course, as with core gumshoe, core clues are free, naturally. Yeah, right. Of course, you can only make so many tick marks on your character sheet. That's limited. And then you go in and erase tick marks when you hit particular roleplay beats that, of course, you yourself choose. And the idea is you create a point economy that cycles very quickly. So it's similar to pushes in Quickshot Gumshoe and Yellow King, 
but with an economy where they recycle. Yes. Fantastic. Well, that alone, I mean, I'll tell you what, if hunting down sea witches and krakens and Moby Dick isn't enough, a circulating point economy, how much more fun can a child have? That's what I want to know. I ask you, Ken. Right. So, uh, shanty hunters available through Kickstarter because you are currently kickstarting it? Is that the story? Yes. So, we are speaking in September, but when you hear this in November, uh, Shanty Hunters is live on Kickstarter. It's running November 2nd through, I believe, December 2nd. You can buy the book, you can buy the PDF, and what's critical is you are buying it cheaper than you will get it at retail, and you will get it sooner than if you waited for retail. So don't wait. Buy it now. Right. And the book is basically done. It's written. I've seen it. I've held it in my hand. Kickstarter is for additional shanties. What What are the are there are there add-ons or is it just hey buy my cool shanty hunters? Thanks very much. So there are stretch goals, or maybe it might be more accurate to say there may be stretch goals. Right, yes. Um, Let's not run ahead of ourselves. But. Exactly. You know, I I have been running Kickstarters for, for a decade now, and I have seen a lot of companies promise the moon with Kickstarters and wind up going belly up, and so I have learned to be very cautious with my stretch goals. I have stretch goals in mind. They're already planned out. They will be revealed when it comes time, if it comes so, time. So, in that case, everyone should rush right over, search Shanty Hunters on Kickstarter, and you'll learn about these mysterious stretch goals of the sea. Or not. Or not. <laughs> Who can say? But if you back it on Kickstarter, you'll get us closer to maybe learning more about these these wonderful stretch goals. And either way, you can use this not just as a fun game in its own right, as an example of gumshoe design, but also as a uh, template for any sort of game in which you have a huge corpus of information out in the world already, how do you bring it into the game? And that, I think, is another thing that you can't emphasize too strongly, that you've got, you know, God knows how many hundred sea shanties out there. Yes. And every one of them is now an adventure hook. Indeed. While we're, we're closing out, I'd like to quick mention, uh, I also write the Molten Sulfur blog, twice any nominated RPG blog that every week puts out something uh, drawn from real history or folklore that is cool and fun to learn about in its own right, and then how to file the serial numbers off of it and put it into the campaign that you are already running, a concept that should be very familiar to Cartaz listeners. So, ModenSulfur.com. ModenSulfur.com for the blog equivalent of our show. Anyway, thanks so much, Tristan, and I think we see either a giant emerald wave of shimmering water coming to swamp us or no, it's just a commercial. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And impossible landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by impossible landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes in entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons this alerts us to the fact that we're standing next to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes even mutilate it. And this time around, beloved Patreon backer Peter Martin asks, If someone were to go back and save Franz Ferdinand from assassination, what would the world look like today? And I think there's been a time paradox 
I, I think we've covered this before, but it must have been <laughs> as a bank shot in some other thing because it doesn't show up in a search of the site. And anyway, even if we have covered it before, this is year eight and we don't expect yeah. everybody to go back and listen to eight years of stuff to get what in this case is one of the classic, you know, next to uh, what happens if somebody kills baby Hitler. This is probably the, the most classic time paradox of all, or I guess time alternate history offshoot of all. And so it's time for us to uh, see what it looks like now when you yet again, I guess, or maybe not save Franz Ferdinand from assassination. So this is the extremely confusing set of events that precipitates World War One, And part of your challenge, Ken, is to encapsulate that as quickly as possible. Yeah. Okay. As quickly as possible. What's going on is that Archduke Franz Ferdinand is the heir presumptive to the throne of Austria. He is going to, at some point, be emperor. He has a wife that the court disapproves of. He personally is mad at the Hungarian half of Austria-Hungary, and they don't like him. And his solution to this is, let's add Yugoslavia to the empire and make it a triple monarchy, and that'll give the Hungarians someone else to be at, mad at instead of me. The South Slavs, by and large, are not down with this, and in the person of the Serbian government, they connive at or even instigate a terrorist group called the Black Hand to go and kill uh, Franz Ferdinand when he tours Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia, which Austria has just annexed in pursuit of this goal of becoming a triple monarchy instead of a boring old double monarchy. And uh, in a insane bit of misadventure and stupidity, it works. The Black Hand is a bunch of incompetent chuckleheads, but you know who's a more incompetent chucklehead? Franz Ferdinand's driver. So, uh, Comedy of Errors ends with uh, Franz Ferdinand being uh, shot uh, after a bomb does not kill him, merely wounds everybody, and uh, when he dies... That is the excuse, says Austria, that we need to uh, invade Serbia and end all of this nonsense forever and get that Yugoslavia added to Austria-Hungary that poor Franz Ferdinand would have liked. But problem is they uh, goof around. They don't invade in a timely fashion uh, when they could have gotten away with it because they want Germany to have their back. And Germany is saying, well, if we have your back, then Russia is going to invade us. And if Russia invades us, then we have to invade France because France has a treaty with Russia and, well, World War One, if I may be so bold. But it all does come down to this Serbian terrorist group that almost couldn't shoot straight. Right. And so uh, I'm beginning to remember the alternate reality where we covered this before, because I think if I remember correctly, uh, your classic way of solving this whenever you need to solve it is to swap out the driver. Yeah. That is a good one because the driver literally makes every bad mistake you can make as the driver. You just put in someone who knows Sarajevo and also knows to not back up back into the area the terrorists were. And then you've saved everybody's life and it and it works like a charm. And in general, if you know how assassinations happened, this is the point of time travel. It's fairly yeah. easy to. Go, oh, well, don't go there. That's where you get shot. Don't be there. Um, every now and again, you do have to send a guy to the book depository or something. But uh, in this case, it literally is just don't drive down the same street three times. You probably won't get anyone shot. Right. Now, this is a scenario where, uh, as you've indicated, Austria wants to invade Serbia. Does Franz Ferdinand's being still alive and unshot? actually prevent them from doing that? I mean, I guess to some extent, this is a, a question because are we merely saving him from assassination? Then there is uh, a Serbian terrorist group that has tried to assassinate Franz Ferdinand. Um, we maybe have the same thing happen because trying to assassinate Franz Ferdinand is almost as bad. They may send the same day marsh, the same result happens. So what we have to assume for the purposes of this being different is that the Serbian government blinks and sends all the conspirators to Austria for trial and washes their hands of them instantly, or more likely shoots them all trying to escape and then sends the bodies to Austria for trial, because at trial they'd say, oh yeah, the Serbian uh, head of the war ministry, uh, you know how to talk to him, he's the guy with all of our pay stubs. And now, That you know, sounds like what they would do. Do you <laughs> need to intervene to get them to do that, or is that probably their, their play? I, I, mean, I think that's the, certainly the smart play, if it looks like... Although making smart things happen... In the lead up to World War One, yeah. it's a job of work. It's it's an uphill climb, absolutely. But 
if you presume that the goal of the of the exercise is to say what happens without World War One breaking out in September of 1914 or August of 1914, then you have you can't just say, oh, it breaks out in, you know, August of 1914, but for an entirely different reason. Uh, you either have to have the Austrian army move on a dime and invade Serbia when they could get away with it, which would have been right at the beginning, you know, basically 48 hours after the assassination, they move, they don't wait around and the world sort of holds its breath. You assume that an undistracted Austria could beat Serbia, although it was harder than it looked even in a regular world war one. And then we move on with uh, European great power politics already uh, in progress or Serbia blinks, sends the guys to Austria, you know, in a box and Austria has to, you know, take the bad deal and uh, settle down and figure out what to do next time. Because absent an invasion of Serbia, they are not going to get all of the South Slavs into a union with uh, the Austrian throne. They could probably use that to annex Bosnia, for example, and get half the South Slavs, the Bosnians, Croats, and Slovenes, but not the Serbs and Macedonians, which is, you know, it's a non-trivial part of why you want uh, Yugoslavia, certainly, but the Serbs are a very, very indigestible pill then as now. So, uh, it might be that Austria lucks into the better result by not having to take over Serbia at all. And that is the road where then you say, well, it's not going to be the idiot Serbs that start it. Will it be the idiot Kaiser Wilhelm that starts World War One? Because he'd been trying to do it over and over and over again for the last 10 or 15 years partly because of his own weird ego problems, but also partly because the German general staff can read uh, an economic prediction as well as the next guy. And they know that if Russia has another decade to industrialize, Germany will no longer be the greatest industrial power in Europe. And that is a bad outcome from their perspective. So right, because that, that brings us to the zoom out, which is that mm -hmm. this story is almost always told as a fluke stupidity led to a war that no one wanted. But in mm -hmm. fact, uh, there's no such thing as a perfectly good reason for a war that causes untold carnage. But in fact, the political setup was already militating toward that. And this was the pretext of something that seems kind of inevitable. So do you have to go to actually prevent World War One? Do you have to go and mess with the Kaiser? Well, messing with the Kaiser would certainly be a, a, a good thing to do anyway, because the Kaiser was a weirdo. And I think the best way to do that is just stop him from being dropped on his side by the nursemaid so that he doesn't get a withered, paralyzed arm. A lot of his problems are basically, and I, I hate psychologizing, you know, uh, geopolitics, as you know, but the Kaiser really was messed up. He really did feel inadequate. He really was part of a culture that absolutely valued strength and masculinity. And he very clearly knew that he could not measure up because he had a withered arm. So if he doesn't have that problem, then he's probably still a chucklehead. You know, you don't raise IQ points this way, but he is at least not a chucklehead with something to prove and the largest, best army in Europe with which to prove it. So I feel like if we're trying to dial back the tension back to a relatively normal sort of tension, we could probably get a Kaiser who does not try to uh, compete with the British in uh, naval terms while also angering his ally Russia, thus forcing an eventual war to be a war fought on two fronts and instead is able to continually strategically isolate France and then slowly exploit Turkey, which was Bismarck's idea in the first place, is we don't need colonies in stupid Africa. It's too far. They don't produce anything. They cost money. Let's vampirize Turkey, the sick man of Europe, because I'll bet we can get away with that if uh, we just keep Russia sweet by throwing it, you know, bits of uh, the Balkans every now and again. So in this scenario where there's a, a well-adjusted, uh, if still power mad Kaiser, perhaps Ferdinand could be assassinated and that wouldn't even lead to anything. That would just be the a smaller story. Yeah, if you have a, a smart Kaiser who has maintained the alliance with Russia, there will be a Russian court faction that insists on helping the Serbs, but there will not be a treaty with France in place that turns it into a general European war. So if Russia idiotically moves against Austria for moving against Serbia, Germany says, you broke the alliance, we have to invade you, which is what they wanted to do anyway. And spoiler alert, if they'd done that without having to deal with the French or even only fought a defensive war 
in the Ardennes, forcing France to violate Belgian neutrality and therefore not bringing Britain into the war, they would have won that war and, uh, you know, uh, knocked Russia back on its heels for a while. Now, of course, as everyone who has ever knocked Russia back on their heels has discovered, Russia's got a lot of heel. So you're kicking the can down the road to the 30s, which is the next opportunity the Russians have to out-industrialize Germany. And you'll note that even under Stalin, speaking of blockheads with uh, issues, Russia was able to out-industrialize Germany on that same smaller resource base that they would have had after a successful German-Russian war in 19, let's say, 16 uh, or 14. So so Russia and Germany are going to be squaring off one way or the other. And if uh, Germany, again, uh, again, in this timeline, they have no necessary reason to demolish Russia by sending Lenin into into St. Petersburg in the sealed train. Lenin, you know, starves to death in, in Switzerland and good riddance to him. Russia you know, may democratize or it may just stay an infuriatingly autocratic empire. They're, they're going to run out of Romanovs at some point, given that elect poor Alexei's got the hemophilia. Um, there's going to be a, a court crisis when he ascends to the throne, whenever Nicholas dies. And uh, that is itself going to lead to a lot of political instability, which might be the opening that the uh, actual social revolutionaries, the non, the Mensheviks, as we like to call them, might be able to force some reforms uh, in a more successful Decemberist uprising sort of mold. And maybe Russia uh, generally unscrews itself in that uh, moment. And best case for Germany, it happens right in that 1930s crisis point when uh, once more, you know, industrializing Russia becomes a threat again to Germany. Right. And the wider question of what happens if World War One doesn't, if it's a, you know, wars still occur, but they're more localized and it's not the incredibly devastating sense of reality and morality shattering event that essentially, you know, uh, crushes the legitimacy of the aristocracy and changes culture forever, creates a lost generation, creates an explosion of uh, uninhibited social activity that also brings Canada and America into European affairs. The question is not, you know, what changes, but what doesn't change? It's everything changes in the yeah. 20th century because of World War One, And it's uh, such a gigantic change to envision. It's hard to you know, imagine where we would be, you know, we might all be wearing pickle haubs for that matter. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we would be in America, but we definitely might all be wearing, you know, uh, ties and suits everywhere still that we would not have had the sort of uber democratization of uh, public life that we have now, or it's possible that, you know, social conditions still, you know, operate. We're still in, you know, industrial countries that still have a tension between who's running them and who gets the vote. That tension exists even in Germany. Um, it, you know, and it will exist in Russia if they ever give people the vote. And so those tensions will express themselves. Will they express themselves all at once in an orgiastic, iconoclastic, everything smash that also kills 40 odd million people? Probably not. But there are going to be social changes, but I feel like they'll be more along the lines of, say, the Chartist movement in England or uh, worst case scenario, if you imagine, you know, sort of a, a, a popular, you know, Peronism in Argentina, sort of an approach, uh, that sort of thing where uh, you get, you know, um, a, a William Jennings Bryan or the equivalent in America who is, you know, Andrew Jackson, you know, but in the 20th century instead of the 19th. So it's, you know, a, an upsurge of democratic feeling. And maybe, you know, we wear our suits and ties out to watch baseball, but you have movies in which people are wearing, you know, open shirts and dungarees and it's, it's daring and fun and exciting and we all love it. And, and you get a sort of a compromise version of the 20th century instead of the, you know, overturning of every standard, uh, good and bad that we got in, you know, 1918 through, you know, now. So for your RPG setting that doesn't have world war one, uh, it can be a mixture of sort of old timiness with, a level of uh, more uh, subtle dystopia under that surface, or uh, you could try to imagine it as, as a utopia, but so much changes that uh, if you got 12 different uh, alternate reality writers to write that reality, it would all be uh, radically, uh, radically different. So yeah. on that note of further cop out, I think it's time for us to uh, escape this episode uh, with our histories intact 
but we'll be back next week for another exciting installment. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Keep this podcast in chronotons by joining such generous backers as... Dan O'Hanlon. Daniel Gill. Eric Jepson. Evan Hughes. And Garrett Fitzgerald. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpahoot.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Put on your best faces with our latest design. Ready for my close-up, Mr. Pickman. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>